Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Tuesday, March 7th. Uh, lots going on in the mayor's race. Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis wasting no time acquiring endorsements. Uh, Mr. Vallis getting the endorsement of one of his former competitors. Alderman Roderick Sawyer has thrown his lot in with Paul Vallis. And um, a very interesting political commentary was published recently by Don Rose. Don Rose has been in the political game (laughs) um, longer than I have, and that's a long time. He has worked inside and outside politics and political campaigns for much of his adult life, and he is uh, really sort of an elder statesman of the political world here in the Chicago area. He's... um, He's written an essay on this mayor's race, and I would like to share it with you. I think it's really it's it's really thoughtful. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, at the end of this essay, he says that he is going to be voting uh, for Brandon Johnson. He said in the first round, he supported uh, Jesus Chewy Garcia, um, but he is going to be supporting Brandon Johnson in the race. And here's what I found was interesting. And I'm going to talk to Don about it uh, tomorrow at 2.15, because rather than having specific objections that are unique to Paul Vallis, he seems to somehow feel that Vallis's campaign is a return to machine politics. And I'm honestly not sure why he feels that way. I mean, it's not like, you know, Ed Burke and uh, Mike Madigan and Joe Berrios are out there stumping for Paul Vallis. So I'm a little confused by that. But he has some real thoughtful commentary here. I'm going to share a little bit with it of it from it. Hello with you now. Less than a month from now, Chicago voters will have a stark choice between the most progressive and the most conservative of the nine candidates who ran in the first rounds, with the odds strongly in favor of the conservative. I speak here, of course, of Paul Vallis, the law and order candidate who came in first with about 34 percent of the vote, and Brandon Johnson, the Chicago Teachers Union organizer who came in second running on a batch of tax-the-rich proposals, garnering a bit over 20%. And here's what I don't understand. He seems to feel that somehow um, there is some sort of reconstitution of the old Chicago political machine coming together uh, specifically to defeat Brandon Johnson, but he doesn't really explain what he means by that. He also thinks that it's going to be significant that Paul Vallis is white and Brandon Johnson is black. Though, again, I love Don Rose, but I don't think that that is as significant 
as it would have been decades ago. I mean, Brandon Johnson has a lot of white support. Paul Vallis has a lot of African-American support. You know, uh, Roderick Sawyer, Jesse White. You know, there are prom- prominent African-Americans that have come out for Vallis. Uh, so that seems to me uh, kind of a puzzling comment. Here's what he had to say about the mayor, the current mayor. Left behind in third place was incumbent Lori Lightfoot, whose low popularity numbers for the past two years signaled that she would be a likely loser. Though she couldn't help herself, she was able to knock out the early leader, progressive congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia, with an unanswered onslaught of attack ads falsely tying him to the misdeeds of crypto crook Sam Bankman-Fried and the indicted former Speaker of the Illinois House, Mike Madigan. And here's, you know, this is where Don Rose is at his best, analyzing a campaign and where maybe the choices they made weren't the best choices. Here's what he says about Chewy Garcia. Now, remember, he voted for Chewy Garcia. He supported Chewy Garcia. So this analysis is coming from somebody who likes Chewy Garcia. Garcia's campaign ignored the attacks until it was too late, making the same strategic error John Kerry did in the 2004 presidential race when Kerry failed to respond to the so-called swift boat attacks on his integrity and military heroism. Um, John Kerry, um, it was claimed by some people, supposedly veterans came forward to say Kerry wasn't, didn't do uh, in the Vietnam War what he claimed to do. And, you know, the, um, the heroism that was being attributed to him, he didn't deserve. And Don Rose is right. Um, John Kerry waited so long to address the charges that a lot of people started to believe they were true. People who otherwise would not have thought that. Sometimes you have to take action. You know, back in the days when I was on television... You know, you'd get a lot of grief from a lot of different quarters, newspaper writers or or people who watch the station. And generally speaking, it was best just to ignore it. You know, somebody writes something snarky about you in the newspaper. Rather than engaging, sometimes it's best to ignore it because sometimes you can't win for losing. I remember once Mike Sneed in her gossip column, reported the completely false story. I don't know who planted this lie, but somebody told her that Jackie Bang and I had had a screaming fight in the newsroom. Jackie Bang and I (laughs) were not only collegial co-workers, we were good friends, in fact... When she wrote this, Jackie Bang and I were living together. We were roommates. 
to say that there was not only was there no screaming fight, but for the most part, Jackie and I worked different shifts. We rarely were even in the newsroom together. There wasn't a loud conversation. There wasn't anything that could have been misconstrued as a fight. Nothing. Whoever planted this was just being vicious. And, of course, Mike Sneed followed the rule of thumb that a lot of newspaper reporters, especially those who write gossipy columns, do. Mike hadn't called Jackie. She hadn't called me to find out because we would have told her that it was entirely made up. So if you don't call, then you can't say that, you know, you knew it was untrue and you published it anyway, right? So just publish it. So Jackie and I were horrified by this, and we contacted Mike Sneed, and we told her, you know, it was absolutely fake. Never happened. So you know what Sneed published the next day? She posted this really snotty comment. Well, heard from Jackie and Joan, they claim it never happened. But clearly... The way she wrote it, it was like, I don't believe them and neither should you. So you know what? Can't win for losing. So generally the rule of thumb is if somebody attacks you, you just ignore it and eventually it dies down, it goes away. Not always, though. And not when you're running for office. John Kerry thought that the attacks against him were so outlandish and so absurd that nobody would believe them. And that if he rebutted them, he would just be giving them more airtime. But the story didn't go away, and it kept coming back, and it kept coming back. And by the time John Kerry decided to come out and speak, he'd lost a lot of people. So that's what Don Rose is talking about when he said Garcia's campaign made the same strategic error that John Kerry did. He ignored Lori Lightfoot's attacks until it was too late. He said as Garcia lost his lead, because you remember, he wasn't one of the front runners. As Garcia lost his lead and started a downward slide, Brandon Johnson began his rise from relative obscurity to major contender. Also true. In the last two weeks of this campaign, Brandon Johnson was on fire. He was on fire, and he knew it. You could just tell there was a passion there. There was an excitement there. We uh, sent one of our reporters to Brandon Johnson's headquarters on the night of the runoff. And they said for the first couple hours, people were clearly kind of nervous. And then when the numbers started coming in and they they knew they looked good, it was almost, he said, as if there was a um, a light switch that had changed Suddenly, the people who were cautious and nervous were ecstatic and having a whole lot of fun. I want to share more of um, what uh, Don Rose observed about this mayor's campaign, but we need to take a real quick break here. I'll be back with more right after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We have an interesting day planned for you here on uh, WCPT. 
And uh, we are going to get started on it in just a couple of minutes. But I have been sharing with you uh, some of what longtime political consultant Don Rose wrote about this election. For those of you who are my generation, you know Don Rose. I mean, this is a guy who was deeply involved in a lot of campaigns. And he's someone um, almost all Democrats really have a lot of respect for. When I first started at WCPT, there was a Don Rose essay taped to the front door. And I was told that it was kind of our Bible at WCPT. And that was a Don Rose essay that said that, unlike Republicans, Democrats come in all shapes, sizes, and stripes. Some of the Democrats are very, very progressive. Some Democrats are very, very conservative. But we have to remember, we are the party that is a big tent. And if somebody has a D by their name, we have to support them. Um, And for the most part, I absolutely agree with him. As I've said before, I that really was put to the test with me when Dan Lipinski was the congressperson. Um, I think it was the third district because Dan Lipinski was vocally anti-abortion. And I have a real problem with that. But other than Dan Lipinski and that issue, I agree with Don Rose. Democrats have a big tent. That's why people are always saying, well, there should be a litmus test. What do they mean by that? Well, there should be one or more issues where if you're for it, you're one of us. And if you're against it, even if you say there's a D by your name, you're you're not one of us. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. So I want to uh, sort of wrap up here what Don Rose wrote in his essay about the mayor's campaign. Again, he says he's going to be voting for Johnson, that he previously supported Garcia, but he also says that he thinks that Paul Vallis is going to win this thing. He says, Brandon Johnson, who did not beat Lightfoot in any black ward, has a lot of catching up to do, as well as in the Latino areas. It is quite a task picking up 15 points to tie and then spurt ahead another 15 or so to win the absolute majority on April 4th. Possible, he says, but unlikely. So um, it's going to be interesting. I, I, I think it's interesting when you do a big analysis like this and uh, say that you're voting for somebody who you're pretty sure is going to lose. So we will we will see. We will see how all of this uh, uh, turns out. We are going to be spending most of today talking to people in and around political life. But I do want to catch you up on um, one story that we talked about a long time ago. Remember when we talked about Bell Bowl Prairie? 
it's a piece of land that um, harbors a particularly endangered little little insect. And yet it was designed, or the, there was at least a plan on the books, to uh, bulldoze it be, for an expansion of Rockford Airport. There were a lot of protests, a lot of environmentalists up in arms. They gave the Rockford Airport folks a different plan where they could still expand the airport and leave this little Bell Bowl Prairie alone. It seemed for a while that it, that everything was on hold. Um, we have an update to bring you on this. Carrie Lay is executive director at Natural Land Institute and has been front and center on uh, this story and joins us now to give us an update. Carrie, thanks so much for being here. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So um, what has happened in the time last we spoke, everything was sort of on hold. What has happened since then? So we were waiting for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to give their final determination. Uh, And they did. They sent their final determination to the Federal Aviation Administration last fall, saying that basically there would be no adverse impact to the bee if they did their work. And then we had to wait for the FAA to issue its final written re-evaluation authorizing construction on the Belleville Prairie to the airport. Okay, the the information that was sent to them, um, can you summarize it for us? The information that was sent to the Fish and Wildlife or the FAA? FAA. Uh, so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife um, Service basically told the airport uh, that they had to um, do some mitigation measures uh, and that they could go ahead and destroy the habitat to put the road in. Now, okay. the, when the FAA issued its written evaluation, it did not include all of those mitigation measures, which uh, is one of the reasons that we are uh, suing for um, a stay which means we're trying to stop them, and hopefully we'll know by tomorrow uh, whether the court will do that. So it's now gone. It was in the local Rockford court, and it's now gone to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago, which is a federal court. So after on Friday, March 3rd, after they issued their written reevaluation, on Saturday, March 4th, our lawyers filed uh, the lawsuit with the Seventh Circuit, challenging that written reevaluation by the FAA on many, many different uh, points. So we we then reached out and said, "Hey, when are you, when are you guys going to do this work?" Uh, on Sunday, they told us it would happen on Thursday, March ninth. So uh, the court on Monday confirmed that they had received our lawsuit and that we have the motion to stay. Uh, They've seen that. So they're looking at that. We should hear tomorrow uh, about that. 
So there are several inaccuracies in their written reevaluation on which this uh, motion to stay has been um, submitted and the lawsuit. Uh, And also, we are concerned that the airport is using state taxpayers' money to pay for the prairie-destroying road. Now, we would also say that they're using state taxpayer money to pay for this lawsuit. And if they had applied to use state taxpayer money through an Illinois Department of Transportation grant, um, they would have been using state taxpayers' money to a good purpose and not just frittering it away. So it's been a year and a half that they have not been able to really work on that part of the airport construction. And it's a waste of time and money. We, from the very beginning, have always said that we support the airport expansion. It's so important to Rockford. Uh, This is a really important cargo hub. And we feel that it can be done with uh, sensitivity towards the prairie and redesigned to avoid this ancient 8,000-year-old incredibly rare prairie. This prairie is the original America, and there's hardly any of it left. What is the situation with, I think it was, um, I'm probably not going to say this right, some of the rusty, rusty colored bumblebee, which was found uh, to be using that as a breeding ground? So that was the... um, impetus for the, the it's the rusty patched bumblebee bee. rusty and patched bumblebee right and um it's incredibly endangered across the united states it used to come all the way from the east coast um up through the midwest up into wisconsin and now there's only a few patches of it left here and there uh but the airport will not protect its habitat I mean, excuse me, the federal um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will not protect its habitat. So that means that the airport can do their excavation any time between October 15th and March 15th when the bee is not out there foraging. So they have only until March 15th to go out there and scrape out that prairie, which they can probably do in half a day with their bulldozers. Uh, And then once that prairie and the habitat is gone, they can then uh, move forward with constructing the road uh, without any further damage to the bee. But um, we really um, want to, with this stay, this motion to stay, we want to have them hold off so that we can have the lawsuit heard. So that's what we're looking to do. So there will be press conference and a rally uh, in Rockford outside the courthouse tomorrow, Wednesday afternoon at 5 p.m. So anybody who wants to go, we'd love to see you there. Uh, The address and everything is in the press releases and on the Facebook and on the website, safebellbowprairie.org. 5 p.m. tomorrow? Yes, 5 p.m. tomorrow in Rockford. 
So um, one of the other things is that that FAA um, report also misrepresented uh, the information that we had sent to them and to the Fish and Wildlife because we had our own consultants, engineering consultants, take a look at all of their alternatives that they presented in their draft biological assessment. And our consultants said that um, if they combined their alternative four and their alternative five, they could really um, meet the requirements that they needed and save the prairie. And they misrepresented misrepresented that in um, their final report. Also, they said they had to build this road uh, because the trucks going there um, needed to have this access. And it had to be there because the other roads were at... um, they didn't have the correct alignment or they didn't have the correct speed limit. And so they modeled all of their alternative analysis on a model for 30 miles an hour. We talked to some truckers who said that little short road through the prairie also has an incline. Any truck that's loaded up would not even get to 30 miles an hour uh, by the time the top they reached the top of the road. So they could have modeled their safety aspects for the road construction on a much slower speed limit because it's an internal road. Uh, It's not actually an IDOT road. It's an internal airport road. So they could have had a speed limit of 20 miles an hour, for example. Well, Carrie, when we talked about this um, um, a while back, the people who wanted to keep Bell Bowl Prairie in existence had put together an alternate plan for how the airport could be expanded without destroying the prairie. What happened to that plan? So that was never, that was an individual's plan. Uh, that was never our plan. Uh, there was an individual who was part of the um the interested public who is a a landscape architect and designer, and he had proposed a plan. But this plan, um, we didn't feel it was going to be um, effective because the plan included taking out um, a lot of other land uh, to protect it um, that's in the floodway, in the flood zone. And even though that may be a good thing to do. Uh, We felt that we had to focus on just protecting the prairie. And we didn't want to um, come up with a whole alternative airport design. That's not our job. They have competent engineers there who know how to work with green infrastructure design practices Uh, There are ways, for example, instead of digging out detention basins in high-quality prairie, uh, there are ways to put uh, detention underneath these massive parking lots. So the stormwater detention 
goes under the parking lots, and it has cleaning facilities. So if you just put your detention from an airport, which has anti-icing chemicals and uh, all kinds of hazardous chemicals, and you just put that straight into a detention basin that's built out of sand and gravel, all of those chemicals are going to go straight into the groundwater. So there are so many other ways to use smart green infrastructure designs um, to protect the natural habitat so that you're not um, digging out prairies to store your polluted um, stormwater. What is your feeling about why some of these other alternatives really don't seem to be being pursued? Well, I, I think really that it has to do with um, the engineers are the client, uh, and they're taking their uh, client's requests into consideration. Now, so many other airports around the United States, including O'Hare in Chicago, have incorporated many of these green infrastructure design practices and preserved natural habitats. So why can't Rockford do that? We have worked hard to come up with solutions for them. Uh, there are state uh, grant money available for infrastructure design for airports. Uh, our federal um, senators uh, in Congress and uh, congressmen and women have said that they would support a federal appropriation to the airport if they applied, and the airport has not applied for anything. Um, so uh, we feel now that it's gotten to the point where, because they have never uh, engaged with us at all, um, that it's really a matter of them digging their heels in and just doing what they want to do. So um, I, I'm afraid that uh, it's airport um, governance that so, is holding it up. What are you hoping that this rally that you're going to do at 5 o'clock tomorrow, what is it that you're hoping this accomplishes? So uh, the press release and the rally, um, obviously the press release, we will, we will be hoping to know by 5 o'clock tomorrow whether our motion for stay has been granted. Uh, so we will make, be making that announcement. Uh, and then also we will be talking about some of the mitigation measures that have to happen uh, if our stay is not granted uh, and what are what might our next steps be. So uh, we also want to rally people uh, around this issue because then at 530, people are going to be going over to the airport to do an all-night vigil for the prairie. Um, because they may, they may start at midnight on Thursday. Who knows? I'm talking to Carrie Lee. She is one of the advocates trying to say Bell Bull Prairie that may disappear if the planned extension of the Rockford Airport uh, goes forward without any adjustments. We're going to take a break. And, uh, Carrie, when we come back, we have a listener who would like to join our conversation. We will be right back after this. 
Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away. 773-763-9278. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Now back to Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Carrie Lee. She's the executive director of Nash of the National Land Institute and one of the people who is trying to save Bell Bull Prairie, a prairie that is thousands of years old but may disappear if Rockford Airport expansion plans are not altered. We have a caller, Vicky from Villa Park, wants to comment on this. Vicky, you're on with me and Carrie Lee. Hi, John. Hi, Carrie. Um, I'm having such a hard time with this because I, I learned about the issue right at the beginning. I worked so hard to get progressive Democratic leaders in office throughout our state, uh, just as an individual. And I don't understand how we're at this point where the Land Institute is there to save a few acres of prairie. And this the whole ball got rolling without anybody noticing until it was almost already too late. And now here we are with bulldozers ready to move. Well, actually, Vicki, the fight to hold uh, hold on to Bell Bull Prairie has been going on for at least two years, because I think it was two years ago that I first talked about it on the radio. So yeah, it's... Um, one of the people who called in, and, and the fight's been going on for 50 years before that, with the you know the people who first worked there and and built the land institute partly to protect that prairie and it, i i don't understand how we're at this point where we're looking at let's have more asphalt and more concrete and more toxic runoff the river's going to be threatened by the current competent quote unquote engineers working for the airport it just feels like everybody's dropping the ball on this. And I don't understand. I, I don't like feeling like I'm calling out Governor Pritzker and Senator Durbin. I expect this from the Rockford Airport Authority. I expect this from the town of Rockford. But I don't expect it from people who are part of the environmental movement, part of the preservation movement, part of progressive politics even in terms of how we do new development this is a plan from 1994 that's being executed no matter how much we jump up and down and scream and yell and file injunctions the airport is very clearly moving ahead well let's get carrie uh, to weigh in on that carrie do you feel that all the efforts to say bell bull prairie are being minimized, if not outright ignored? So, first of all, um, I, I want to agree with Vicki that I don't understand either. Um, you know, we're, you know, we feel in the environmental movement that we've moved on and that we've elected people who um, should care about these things. And I must say that I am very disappointed in our governor and uh, in our local politicians. People don't want to take a stand. 
And um, I do understand that there is, there are a lot of political considerations about why they're doing this. But again, I don't understand that. Um, why you can't stand up for what you believe. Um, now, as to the fact that um, what we're doing um, may be ineffectual because they're just going to do what they want to do, I think that even if we don't save the Belbo Prairie, this has been described by uh, DNR, IDNR, Illinois Department of Natural Resources staff, as being the biggest environmental fight in the last 30 years. And what this has done, it has raised the consciousness of people all over this state and beyond across the country that we have recognized through this fight that the 1970s, the 60-year-old um, environmental laws that we thought were going to protect the environment are no longer adequate for the 21st century issues that we have that include things like climate change, invasive species, uh, destruction of habitat, and we're in the sixth great extinction. This has raised everybody's consciousness. And what we, uh, a, a whole bunch of us have gotten together to take a look at how we can impact in the long term the legislature. And we think that one of the best ways to start is by taking a look at the administrative rules that um, serve as guidelines for the agencies to carry out these uh, reviews and all of these things that they're supposed to do according to the uh, State Consultation Act or the Federal Endangered Species Act. And one of the things that we have seen in the consultation process with both the IDNR, Illinois Department of Natural Resources, and the Federal U.S. Fish and Wildlife is, number one, they have not been transparent. And number two, they have not been rigorous in their reviews. There are many things that could have been looked at, and so we are going to be moving forward with that. Also, the third thing is that even if we don't save the prairie, personally, I know that I will have done everything in my power to stop it, and I can live with that. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do what, I, what we are doing. And, you know, the Natural Land Institute and its board as a whole has been committed to this project. And it's been a strain on our finances, I must say. You know, lawyers are expensive, but we also know that we couldn't not do it. It was something that we had to do. Um, so we get lots of support from a huge groundswell of activists and people that care, like you, Vicki, people that care, people who can't believe what's happening in this day and age. It's 2023, for goodness sake. What are we doing? Destroying these treasures. So thank Carrie, you, Vicky, for you. Thank uh, you. Carrie, got a got a question. It might seem like a kind of a crazy question, but is there any chance 
that because this we are talking about a relatively small section of land. Is there any chance it could be moved or is that just absurd? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, our engineers did an analysis of the the airport alternatives and they just they said, oh, yeah, you guys, you can. You can combine your alternatives analysis number four and number five, and you can get everything you want, and we can avoid putting the road through the prairie. So, yes, the solutions are there, and engineers engineers can design anything. They just need to be told that that's what they need to do for their clients. So I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not here to slam engineers at all. I think it all rests with the airport authority uh, and the staff and the governance of the airport authority. And I, as I said before, I'm extremely disappointed in our governor. I don't know. Uh, Vicki mentioned that, you know, back in uh, the night, I can't remember exactly if it was the 1960s when they were going to dig up the prairie before, you know, um, George Fell, our founder, he went out there and stood in front of the bulldozer, and it's true. That's one of the reasons that he formed Natural Land Institute, was to protect these special places. But now, of course, we've got Homeland Security. Anything after 9-11, nobody can go on airport property without it being a massive felony. So please don't do that. Um, We don't recommend in this day and age that you do that. However, it was effective for George uh, back then in the middle of the 20th century. so we have to rely on the rule of law. And one of the things that does hearten me is that I feel like, uh, and this is based on a whole bunch of things, but I feel like we are moving into more of an age of ethics because the rule of law uh, is we are seeing is not effective in the way that we need it to be particularly with regards to environmental protections, with regards to how people are being incarcerated, all kinds of things. So we need to think about an ethic. And that was what George Fell was pushing. Uh, we have, and all other, uh, Aldo Leopold with his land ethic. So we need to push that as well. So let's look at where we go from here. You either you'll find out tomorrow if the stay is granted or not. Obviously, if the stay is granted, the conversations and the dialogue continues. If the stay is not granted, then what? Yes, that's the the prairie will be destroyed. uh, And we have to think then about alternatives for how we move forward. So, and um, what does that look like right now, moving forward? Well, the, I, I'm in conversations with the IDNR because they had talked about mitigating uh, the prairie and maybe salvaging plants and topsoil. We don't know what that might look like yet. I'm working on that at the moment. So it's, it's a sad, sad it's a, yeah. Now. We're down to the wire here, right? And we knew this day would come. We always knew this day would come, and here it is. So explain to the audience again, 
uh, especially those of you who are listening and live either in Rockford or in the uh, general vicinity of Rockford, if this is an, an issue that you would really like to get involved in, something you'd really like to support, um, talk about the rally again tomorrow, Carrie. So I, when we're rallying, I want people to also remember this, that conservation now in the 21st century is no longer us or them. It should be both and. So we should be able to have economic development and protect our natural resources. So I, I want people to understand that. I, I also think that there's going to, well, there's going to also be a vigil after the rally at 530 out at the airport where people are going to stay uh, all night if they want to, to um, hold a vigil and for the prairie. And it's going to be very moving and touching. And I encourage people to go out there and participate in that. And hopefully we will know by Friday whether the prairie is going to be destroyed on Thursday or not. Well, um, I wish you nothing but the best here. And I think you've, you, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. This isn't an us versus them kind of a situation. You know, now that we are wiser and we understand about our resources and that they're limited and what it means sometimes to destroy resources in the, in the cause of progress, it would seem that a solution that satisfies everyone is so possible here. It will really be tragic if it uh, if it doesn't turn out that way. Um, Carrie, uh, thank you so much. We will keep an eye on this. Please let me know uh, tomorrow or Thursday, whenever you get the word on uh, whether or not you got the stay, please reach out to me. I'd like to share with my audience um, how this thing progresses over the next few days, okay? I will, absolutely. And thank you to Vicki for her passion for the natural world. Yeah. I think, how could you not? How could you not have a passion for the natural world? I mean, I'm somebody, who, Carrie, who never leaves my house, and I have a passion for the natural world. So uh, it just seems like it is in our own best interest over the long haul to have an interest in the natural world and keeping our resources available to us. Uh, thank you again for the work you're doing. Thank you for the rally you're having tomorrow. And again, give the Facebook address if people want to find, if, if they've forgotten how to get the information. It's just Save Bell Bowl Prairie. That's B-E-L-L-B-O-W-L. Save Bell Bowl Prairie. Excellent. Well, good luck with this and keep us apprised. Okay, Carrie? Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. That's Carrie Lee, Executive Director of the National Land Institute. And uh, the fight to save Bell Bowl Prairie might possibly be at an end. Coming up in the next half hour, we are going to switch gears. You know, we are going to be talking to a lot of the aldermanic candidates who are involved in runoffs. There's quite a number of them. 
April 4th, depending upon where you live, you may yet be uh, choosing not only a mayor, but also a new alder person. Well, um, one person who will not be facing a runoff is Ninth Ward Alderman Anthony Beal. He came away with 60-some percent of the vote on February 28th, despite the fact that he had two challengers. We are going to be talking to him right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There was an election February 28th. There will be another one on April 4th. Not only will you see, if you live in the city of Chicago, Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson on your ballot, but you might have to vote for an alderman. In the Ninth Ward, Anthony Beal faced a couple of challengers and came away with more than 60% of the vote to continue on in the seat that he has held since 1999. We asked him uh, to talk about the city council and uh, Chicago politics, and he joins us now. Mr. Beal, thank you for coming back. It's a pleasure to always be with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. So in this new city council with all these uh, new older people, you're going to be like uh, one of the voices of experience, the grand old man. <laughs> well, I, I hope that I've been a voice of experience, uh, you know, my entire career, and I continue to uh, fight on behalf of the people of the city of Chicago and what I believe is right in order to make the city a better place to live and play, and I'm going to continue along that same path. A lot of people seem to be speculating that when all is said and done and all of the last older people are seated, that we may see not only a city council that's much younger in experience, but some are predicting that it will be a more progressive city council. When you look at the seats that are filled and the seats that are yet to be filled, do you agree with that assessment? Well, I, I think that's the, the role we need to take in order to have uh, the checks and balances on any mayor. I think we need to uh, have an independent city council. As you know, I've been fighting for us to have our own budget department, our own parliamentarian, and our own uh, legal council. And I've been fighting for that for, you know, the past few years, and I've been hitting roadblocks with this administration. Uh, you know, I attempted to try to organize the, the city council, um, um, you know, when this mayor got elected. Not that I was opposed to the mayor at that time, but I was just trying to make sure that the aldermen uh, um, had the tools necessary to be a true legislative body with checks and balances on the administration. And, you know, by me raising my voice and trying to get my colleagues to see this is the direction we need to go, you know, the mayor, uh, this mayor saw fit to strip me of all my authority and strip me of all my committee assignments and, and basically just, you know, try to basically kick me to the side and try to silence me for trying to speak up and be an independent voice. Yeah, you definitely um, didn't see eye to eye with this mayor from the from the very beginning. And um, are you teaming up at all with Matt Martin? Because I know that in one of um, 
one of the fairly recent council meetings, he came forward and said, hey, here's a great idea. Why don't we as city council members name our own committee chairs to our committees? Like, guys, what do you think about this? This is a great idea, right? And at least so far, it hasn't happened. But at least on paper, the form of government in the city of Chicago is supposed to be strong city council, weak mayor. But it's never actually worked out that way, has it? No, it has not. And, you know, I mean, I commend uh, Matt for uh, taking the step that he did. But uh, the step that Matt took was an independent, self-serving step, Um, you know, because, you know, there are a lot of people who have seniority that have uh, a a larger knowledge base of the city. And, uh, you know, you have to account for some of that. And so he went on it as a lone wolf instead of as a collective body in order to make sure that, uh, you know, the entire entire city council is represented. Um, You know, he just saw fit to put himself in that seat. Um, You know, so I commend the move. But, you know, I think it was, um, you know, done uh, you know, as an independent, self-serving move instead of a collective move that would have been best for the entire city. So when the city council convenes under the new mayor, whomever that turns out to be, what are you going to, are you going to revive some of the things that you tried to fight for under Lori Lightfoot? Absolutely. And I think this is a, a great opportunity for us to uh, move forward and put a lot of these, these things in place. But I'm going to just say this. I think this is an opportunity for us to do that working along with the administration. You know, I mean, we don't we don't want the city to be fighting. We don't want the city to be you know up in arms at all times because there's too much at stake. Crime is at stake. Education is at stake. So there are a lot of things that we need to do to move forward. But let's move forward collectively, having the checks and balances on the administration uh, by us having our own budget department where we can go in and get some true independent budget analysis. Let's have our own legal department to have the law give us, uh, uh, you know, our own lawyers to give us true legal advice on the things that we're trying to do. And those, if we had just those couple of things in place, it would help empower us as legislators to put the check and balance on the administration. Now, if the administration is wrong, now we have an independent voice telling us, no, let's pull this back and let's work this out. And so it's a, it's, it's, you know, we want to work with the administration. We want to work alongside with the administration, but at the same time, empower ourselves as elected officials. And, you know, because we see what rubber stamp has gotten us all these years. It doesn't get us anywhere. Silencing all the voices hasn't gotten us anywhere. So I think we need to have that voice. We need to have, uh, you know, the ultimate step up and, and, and be true legislators because that's what we are elected to do and not just go down and vote for whatever the administration wants us to vote for. And so if we do that, this city will, city will be in a much better place at the end of the day. Why do you think some of your colleagues, rather than supporting that kind of independence, um, seemingly prefer to align themselves with the mayor? Because that's the easy thing to do. Uh, let the mayor think for me. Let the mayor's office do all the work. Let the mayor's office uh, handle all the things that I need taken care of. And they don't have to think. And so we need, you know, and that's why I'm excited about this new crop coming in, because this new crop that's coming in is saying, hey, you know, we have fresh ideas. So if we can mold the old way of doing things with the fresh ideas, I think we can move forward because we have to work together. We need young, fresh ideas coming in. But at the same time, we need to know, uh, the new people that are coming in on how to get things done. And I think if we marry, if we marry those two things together, man, the, the power that we can have making this city a better place will be amazing. 
If you can get either the support of your colleagues or the support of the next mayor behind you, what's one thing that you'd really like to see happen in your ward? Well, you know, there's a lot of great things happening in my ward right now. You know, we have Woman National Monument that is just growing by leaps and bounds. We have a new hotel that we were breaking ground with this summer, uh, which is going to be the first hotel. Uh, it's going to be a 101-room hotel on the south side of Chicago in the Rose and Pullman community. We haven't had a new hotel in over 40 years. And so with that, with the, um, the Pullman Community Center, that's bringing in tournaments and bringing in tourism, bringing people from outside the city uh, to participate in basketball tournaments, baseball tournaments, soccer tournaments. You, you know, all these things are happening. But at the same time, you know, our shopping district is booming. The Walmart is doing well. One of the top Walmarts right here off the Bishop Ford Expressway, our Ross, our Planet Fitness. And then all, let's not even talk about all the industrial that we brought to the area with S.C. Johnson, Method, Gotham Green has built two greenhouses in the area. And so, you know, Amazon built a new uh, hub right here in the community. So we're, we're growing by leaps and bounds. But the biggest thing, Joan, the biggest thing that I'm looking forward to in this, this next term and this next administration is with the remap, I have the luxury of having Roseland Hospital in my ward now. And so we have a medical district designation that hasn't done anything since Pat Quinn was the, uh, the governor. Governor Quinn designated that area as a, a medical district, and we haven't done anything with it. But now, what does that mean? Ward, what, well, is, what does that mean, Anthony, a medical district? Well, if you look at everything that they've done downtown with Northwestern, um, with University of Chicago, all that development that took place, that's because those areas were designated as a medical district. That allows you to get state funding, federal funding to come in and really explode, uh, you know, uh, medical resources in your area. And so if we did that... We know COVID exposed the fact that we have a health desert in our community. Even though we have Rosen Hospital, Tim Egan is doing a wonderful job over there with the resources that he has. But if we can, uh, we, we have a huge plan where we're going to start acquiring land. We finally got $25 million from the from the state. My state rep, Nicholas Smith, working alongside with the governor and working with Bob Rita, the other state rep. We got $25 million to start doing acquisition. So we're going to start coming down from Roseland Hospital, coming east on 111th Street, start acquiring property, and we're going to start really just growing the hospital and the medical needs that we have in our community, well, you know, the medical needs that we don't have, and, and start, you know, making sure our community has all the resources. So I'm really excited about that piece right there because that's going to bring thousands of jobs, that's going to bring thousands of people into the community, and we're going to change the face of, you know, health care here on the south side of Chicago with that medical district. And so it's, that's going to be something special that I'm looking forward to spearheading. With some of the things that you've accomplished, and I know you mentioned the hotel, but I think there's also a uh, coffee roaster company and a microbrewery. Maybe I just paid attention to those because I like beer and coffee uh, that are also yeah, coming know. into your ward. Um, with this yes. development, uh, is is anything to do with this development related to the Invest Southwest, did you get any help from City Hall on bringing some of this stuff to your ward? Joan, everything that I have just mentioned to you has absolutely nothing to do with Invest Southwest. There has been no activity. There's been no growth. There's been no interest as far as Invest Southwest in the Ninth Ward whatsoever. All these things I have done were pre this administration. And, uh, you know, I have a new Culver's. 
that, you know, we, we worked on and none of these things are in that Southwest. And so the, the, the brewery is something, again, we're breaking ground with that brewery this summer as well. It's going before plan commission on the 16th of this month. And so it's, and it's veterans roast. They hire nothing but veterans and they're going to roast coffee and they're going to brew beer and it's going to be a restaurant component uh, in it as well. And so when you start bringing those kind of amenities into a community like mine with the amenities that we already have and we're growing, we're changing the face of how my ward looks. We're changing the face of how the South Side looks. And so I'm excited to finally, you know, have a partner again on the fifth floor because there's so many other things that I could have done, but, you know, because of the personality conflict and the retaliatory, um, you know, uh, mayor that we had, a lot of the things that I was trying to push for were, were stonewalled and they weren't moved forward. So I'm excited about having a new administration that we can, um, you know, sell my community on these ideas and these things that I'm trying to do and get the resources behind it to make it happen. So there's been a lot of questions because Invest Southwest was a big Glory Lightfoot thing that it might go away. Would you care one way or the other about that? No, I wouldn't. Uh, because, again, the Invest Southwest, in my opinion, is it, it was uh, it was all show and no go. It was, uh, you know, let's look at the shiny objects. We're about to do all these great things. But when you look at Invest Southwest, there were all one offs. And I say one-offs, they were looking at one building in each one of these corridors. They're trying to buy the building, rehab it, or build a building for, uh, solely on taxpayer dollars, hoping that somebody would move in. There was no plan for, uh, for sustainability, for who's going to move in there. How is this building going to sustain itself? How is it going to grow outside of this one building? There was no comprehensive plan whatsoever. And so everything that I tried to propose, I was shot down because this commissioner, I will tell you, Commissioner Cox, I will be so glad. I wish he would have resigned when Brown resigned so we can really get start getting things going. And so, um, you know, the ideas that I have in place, um, it's, it's beneficial to my community. You see everything that we've done. We've created over 2,000 jobs in my community in the last 10 years. We've had over a billion dollars of public-private investment in my ward, and that was all done without having a partner on the fifth floor. And so I'm excited about the future of, of my ward. I'm, I'm excited about the future of this city because we need to get this city back on track. We are going to take a break. We are going to talk more about the future of the Ninth Ward with its older person, Anthony Beale, when we come right back after this. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Ninth Ward Alderman Anthony Beale, who is talking about how much more he could accomplish in the Ninth Ward if he had the backing of City Hall, which, of course, leads us to the question, who are you supporting in the runoff? Well, you know, right now, Joan, I'm going to tell you, I, I believe that we need to um, elect a mayor that is going to be serious about fighting crime. And we need a, a mayor who is um, can hit the ground running, a mayor who has uh, a knowledge base on how to get things done in the city, uh, somebody who is going to work with the aldermen and, and support us in what we're trying to do in our ward, you know, somebody who's serious about development and, and, and just creating opportunity to make this city a better place to live and play. And when you look at a person who um, has those experiences, there's only one person that really stands out from the rest. Um, you have a person who doesn't have experience, somebody who, you know, sounds good, 
but uh, but doesn't have uh, you know what, what how we used to say in the community you know all show and no go. And so we've elected a mayor that didn't have experience. And where did that get us? We had a mayor who was controversial. Where did that get us? And so when you look at it, at the end of the day, there's only one person that's a clear cut person to lead this city that has a vision, the dedication and the passion, um, the skills. And that's Paul Vallis. Wow. Have you publicly endorsed him before today? I have not. Um, but, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a very astute um, you know, person, and I've been around a while, and I'm, you know, I'm just looking at the lay of the land. Uh, you know, you have somebody who's trying to defund the police. You're looking at somebody who wants to promote. Well, you know, Brandon Johnson's people would would argue that his his work as a Cook County commissioner, and frankly, also to some degree, his work with the Chicago Teachers Union, that qualifies as experience in government. You don't agree. Well, again, he's only been a commissioner for a very short period of time, and we know he's been an organizer for, for CTU. And when you look at those things, has he ever been in charge of a serious budget? Has he ever, um, you know, put a deal together for development? Uh, does he know what TIF is? Do we, does he know what TIF means? Does he know, you know, what new market tax credits are? Does he know, you know, how to do creative financing, uh, you know, when you look at the plan that he's put in place, it's a city killer. When you look at all the taxes, all the fees and everything he wants to raise, businesses will run out of this city. And when you look at the police department, he's not even committing to hiring the police that have um, the police vacancies that we have. Right now, they're saying we have 1,700 vacancies. Joan, let's not forget, this mayor wiped out 614 police positions in 2020. And so when you look at that, we have over 2,300 police vacancies. And we're not talking about filling them, but we're going to promote 200 more detectives to solve crime, which is okay, which is good. I support that. But what, how are you going to backfill those 200, you know, if you're not going to hire, if you're not going to, um, you know, have a, a, an aggressive plan to put people on the street? And so, you know, we have to start peeling this, this, this onion back. And I guarantee you, the more you peel the onion back, the more things are going to start coming to fruition that, you know, it's a clear cut choice on who the next mayor should be. You know, a lot of people would be surprised by that because the thinking is that because Paul is white and Brandon is black, that a lot of African-American support is just automatically going to go to Brandon. I personally, when I've heard people say that, you know, maybe I'm being naive, but I kind of think we've moved beyond. I'm not saying entirely moved beyond racial politics, but I think that like what you're saying and what a lot of people are saying, it isn't just a black and white issue. Like we're going to I'm white, so I'm voting for the white guy. I'm black, so I'm voting for the black guy. I think we've moved beyond that. Would you agree? Well, I would definitely agree with that. And I'm really sick and tired of the divisive race baiting um, you know, people who are, you know, spewing that, that we need to vote for a person just because they look like me. If you, we, 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 we just went through a mayor that looked like me. And where did that get us? Mm-hmm. Where we, we, we got the highest crime, uh, you know, education system went on strike a couple of times. Our city got looted beyond belief. And we tried to advocate and warn this administration on what's best and what was coming. And we were, you know, ignored. And you see where it got us. And so we need somebody who's going to listen to us. We need somebody who, I don't care what color you are. If you can help me, if you're going to listen to me and you have the knowledge to help me grow my community, let's do it. Let's make it happen. But, you know, Paul is the only one that has the experience 
And you know, he knows numbers backwards and forward. He knows how to <laughs> He's really a numbers guy, isn't he? Oh my God. And, and and he knows how to do creative financing. He knows how to balance budgets. He knows how to leverage funds to make them go further. And so when you look at all these things, that's the person that we need in charge of this city. And so, you know, I, I, I like Brandon, I respect him, but you know, there's no substance there that can help this city move forward. I just don't see it. Well, um, with the support of a new mayor, whoever it is, what are what is what's your what's on your agenda for the next year for the ninth ward? Well, you know, don't, you know, before you know this mayor came in and before this superintendent came in place, out of the 15 most violent communities, Roseland was the only one that had a reduction in crime because of all the things that we have done in the community. But this. This superintendent Brown came in and dismantled everything that we were doing. I don't. I don't remember when I was talking about the cop house, a creative yeah. idea. You know, do you know that that cop house still has not seen the light of day because this mayor refused to get behind it, even though it passed city council forty-eight to nothing, and it was an ordering ordering the superintendent to make this happen. And I have the private funds. wasn't costing taxpayers a dollar. This mayor squashed it because it wasn't her idea, and she told her superintendent he better not move on it. You know, and so he was really in violation of the law because we ordered him to do it, and he still ignored it. So that's not the kind of administration. That's why this administration was rejected. That's why this administration was thrown out. And so that's why we have to make sure we move forward and elect somebody who is going to get things done, knows what's best for our community, listen to the alderman about what's best for our community, and support us on that. Don't just, you know, the aldermen don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. I know best. I know everything. Well, we see where that's gotten us. So I think it's time to turn the page. Well, I love talking to you. I love talking to people who have great ideas and and passionate feelings and can express both articulately. Um, and it has been too long since we had you on the radio. So um, I've got your number now. So I'm going to be calling on a regular basis. So let's just you just look at your calendar and figure out going forward how you're going to fit this into your schedule. Because uh, I am I'm like a dog with a bone. OK. And uh, as as this runoff election takes place, as things start evolving under a new administration, I need you to come on the radio because I know you'll tell it like it is. And I appreciate that. No problem. I appreciate you and I appreciate you having me. Uh, you know, our communities and our, this city need uh, true leadership. And I'm looking forward to, for this next administration to come in and make it happen so we can get the city back on track. Thank you so much. Uh, Ninth Ward Alderman Anthony Beal. Uh, he's going to do a regular segment on this show. It's like we're going to call it What Does Anthony Think? Um, and <laughs> right now we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more after this. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We are joined now by somebody who surprisingly is not a politician, but they are very involved with the news of the day, particularly as it applies to Asian Americans and uh, their lives and all the issues that they particularly face. 
Randy Kim is the creator and host of the Bon Me Chronicles. It's an Asian American show. And we asked Randy to join us and talk about some of these issues. Randy, welcome to our little radio show. Oh, thank you so much, Joan. I've always looked up to you, and it's an honor to be on your show. <laughs> well, thank you. It is a pleasure to have you here, and congratulations on your master's from DePaul that you walked away with last year. So tell me about the Bon, bon Me Chronicles. What is that show, and what do you want to accomplish with it? Sure. So the Bundy Chronicles was created back in October 2019, a couple months before the pandemic. And what I set out to do with the show is to explore issues of diaspora, assimilation, and community empowerment in Asian American communities. And I felt that it was very vital to showcase how Asian American stories are beyond the model minority. It's beyond the typical success stories that you it's often associated with Asian Americans, but to get into layers, to get into nuances of what it means to be Asian American. And what does it mean to be an Asian American beyond the stereotypes? I mean, I know those stereotypes. One of my girlfriends, uh, she was Greek, but she was married to a Japanese man. Their daughters clearly had an Asian cast to their faces. And I remember when one of her daughters was in school and had a test coming up, uh, she and her daughter worked for hours and hours with flashcards and everything, and they really spent a huge amount of time, and her daughter ended up getting a great grade, and she went to pick up her daughter, and she heard somebody, well, of course she got a great grade, she's Asian. And my friend was so furious that it was not, it was not, oh my God, that girl must have worked really hard. Oh, of course she got a great grade. She's Asian. Like somehow she was genetically uh, predisposed to getting A's. Yeah, I think that it's, it's certainly the same kind of trope that you hear so often that's being associated with Asian Americans. I think what I look at is Asian Americans in general, are very, it's a very layered experience that's intersectional. There's LGBTQ Asians, there's undocumented Asians. Well, it's not a monolith. Of course it's not a monolith. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Oh, no, it's okay. It's, It's not a monolith. I think that there's so many different stories that are often erased, neglected, and not talked about that actually harms our communities when we are not talking about or bringing up issues that have affected our communities, whether it's on deportations, whether it's on the anti-Asian violence, uh, whether it's on the uh, wealth disparity uh, among Asian American groups. Like, for example, Southeast Asians are among the poorest uh, among Asians, and we're not talking about these issues. So, uh, But also, more importantly, we're not talking about the different kinds of joy that our communities experience, and that's something that I want to lift up in our in our in, in my podcast. So talk about that. Uh, talk about that a little bit more, and talk about your own personal experience. I think joy is something that is often very challenging uh, to talk about in our community because oftentimes we equate it to academic successes. We look at it with financial successes, but what about our communities? our success as a community, our 
ability to advocate for our voices. I, I mean, there's so many different layers of how we express our joy that is oftentimes not talked about, that is not associated with the financial successes that, um, that we, you know, tend to uh, tie in with Asian communities with. And for myself personally, I'm a queer Vietnamese, Cambodian American. I've been the first one born in the United States on both sides of my family. And I remember how difficult it was for me to not have Asian American role models that were taught in schools, that uh, it was very difficult to find who I can model myself after. And nobody in the school books looked like you. No, no one in the school books look like me unless we're the villains, whether it's in the Vietnam War and the, uh, the Japanese attack of Pearl Harbor. Unfortunately, we're seen as the villains, and if we are taught about our history. Uh, and it's very unfortunate because we're not taught about the people like Grace Lee Boggs or Yuri Kojiyama or Fred Korematsu. Those are important figures that it would have benefited me growing up or it would have benefited many of our communities if we have learned about the, the wonderful contributions that our uh, community members have done over the years being in America and not be seen as a perpetual foreigner. Randy, I've got to tell you, I'm not familiar with any of those people you just mentioned. Can you tell me about them briefly? Sure. Well, Grace Lee Boggs and Yuri Kojiyama have been known to be longtime civil rights leaders, along with Fred Korematsu. Grace Lee Boggs and work with the Black Panthers, and also Yuri Kojiyama worked with Black community um, members, including Malcolm X. And they had worked towards anti-imperialism work. They have done work that is um, that is on Black and Asian solidarity work. They've held the model for what activism have looked, would look like for the Asian American communities, which oftentimes we don't hear about it. Uh, we don't hear about Asian American activism out in the streets, but they were one of the pioneers behind this work. And Fred Korematsu has been a big pioneer in the, uh, the fight against the, uh, the Japanese incarceration period during World War II and the reparations work that he was pushing so hard for. Interesting, interesting. Um, Randy, we have a caller who would like to join our conversation. Uh, Steve is one of our regular callers. He calls in from the Gold Coast area of Chicago. Steve, you're on with me and Randy Kim, who is the creator and host of the Bomb Me Chronicles. Yes, I think it's an extremely interesting topic. And that, uh, you know, we, we in America, we sort of lump people together we, out of convenience. And somehow it, in this country, we've managed to lump people together who are from Japan with people who are from India. You know, and if you right. go to either of these countries, you know, the, uh, most of the people couldn't find the other on, the, on a map. Uh, but yet, you know, everybody is considered Asian. And the reality is, as your guest points out, that different Asian groups have different experiences in America. And, and they don't all uh, perform uniformly uh, with regard to things like educational outcomes. And the reality is that uh, America has sort of self-selected, especially with regard to Japanese, Chinese, South Korean immigrants, um, you know, with regard to who we allow in, Indian immigrants. Um, because of our immigration policy, we're we have a preference for people who are extremely well-educated and skilled, especially in high-tech jobs. 
So it's not a surprise that, guess what? When those individuals come here, they do well economically, they do well educationally, their children do well, because anybody who is making a good deal of money and is highly educated, their children tend to do well. So, you know, th- this idea that, you know, that it's simply about that someone's race or a, a particular culture, you know, dismisses all these other intervening variables that we need to consider, because there are a lot of other Asian groups who aren't doing very well. You know, you can't compare Japanese Americans with Laotians. I mean, I'm sorry, and 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 that's and these are the realities that we have to look at. So, uh, well, Steve, that's uh, a really interesting point, Randy. How do you handle that? Because Steve's right. I mean, and, and you and I said at the beginning, this Asian American community is not a monolith, but it is quite possibly one of the most diverse communities, you know, of of any ethnicity. How do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. I think it's always been very frustrating because oftentimes I have to, I often have to explain myself about where I'm from, you know, which I've been born in America, but I have to explain the origins of my parents' upbringing, which is very laborious. But I, I think oftentimes it all comes down to telling our stories as a community. It's important for us to document them. The reason why I did my podcast is because I wanted to show the, the different stories of the Asian American experiences that no one's really talking about. And so that is one way to uh, address it. Uh, it's also to make our voices heard in the classroom and in the um, podcasting or content creation format, which we're seeing more uh, access to in our community that we didn't have 20 years ago. So it is a start. It's not the uh, what brings you to the finish line, but it's the beginning of the conversations that we need to have in our community. And by doing that, we are making ourselves very present in the history books, in the TV channels, in the content formats. Steve, thank you so much for the call. Randy, hang on. We've got to take a commercial break. I'm going to be back with Randy Kim. He is the creator and host of the Bon Me Chronicles, a recent DePaul master's graduate and uh, an interesting, an interesting show on a lot of the different aspects of the Asian American community. We'll be back with more right after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Randy Kim, who's the creator and host of the Bon Me Chronicles. It's an Asian American show that talks about all different aspects of being a part of the Asian American community, a very, very diverse community. His background is Vietnam and Cambodia. But as Steve from the Gold Coast was just pointing out, I mean, let's face it, <laughs> there are um, Asians from, uh, you know, from very many places around the world, you know, it's not just Chinese and Japanese, it's uh, Philippines, it's, um, you know, I talk to so many people at Randy and they usually, rather than just simply identifying as Asian American, they get more specific about it. Because let's face it, somebody from China only has so much cross-pollination with somebody who's considered a, an Asian person from India it is um it's a wildly disparate community. I want to talk to you about some of the interviews that you've done for your podcast. Um what what one interview stands out to you that you'd like to share with my listeners? 
Sure. So one of my favorite interviews I did was uh, with Kathy Park Hong, who wrote the book Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning. It's a national bestseller. Uh, the book uh, actually came out right before the pandemic and before the anti-Asian violence was taking place. And what I felt was so uh, profoundly moving about uh, Minor Feelings is that it really names the different issues that uh, the the many different personal experiences that she experiences as an Asian American woman, but also goes into the different context of what being Asian American means and how does it affect our day-to-day lives. It's certainly a book that I highly recommend. And I was that's not her. Po- that's to- not a book of her poetry, though, right? Because I know she's a poet. No, it's not. Yeah, she is a poet, uh, but that happened to be like a series of short stories talking about the Asian American experiences and some of the historical um, nature that is tied to her experiences. Interesting. And what was what was it that she shared that was so moving or important to you? I think uh, being able to name, being able to confront some of the quiet um, things that it's, I think being able to confront some of the things that we stay silent about, whether it's on Asian American racism, whether it's on on some of the mental health issues that we experience, and how it's important for us to name that, being able to talk about it. And I think uh, she does it so very well. And um, definitely one of my favorite uh, moments is just having her talk about these experiences, talking about... Uh, the black and Asian solidarity uh, after the L.A. riots of 1992 that, you know, people do forget about and uh, talking about uh, the issues with anti-Asian violence and how actually it was so it would mirror what would happen during the pandemic. And the book came out actually, I guess, like maybe a few months after or at the beginning of the pandemic. So it just seemed to come up at the right time, uh, even though. She herself would not have envisioned that these world events would start taking place. There has been a noticeable increase in a lot of different hate crimes, but especially Asian American hate crimes. What is your own personal experience? And with all the different people you've talked to, do you have any special insight into why you think this is happening now? I think often, I think this is a very tough question because I personally have not experienced the anti-Asian violence during the COVID period, but I have also been um, listening to stories of friends who have experienced some form of anti-Asian violence or harassment or uh, microaggressions at work. Uh, And I think that it's, it is a very challenging, it's, it's so layered, and it, it, there's so much different um, complexities to why these things happen. But I think when we grow up, we're taught to be very silent. We're taught to not have to speak up when problems arise in our own community. And, and oftentimes that silence is not, it, we see it as, we see silence as being convenient for our community. But what we also end up finding out is that silence is not our protector. And, and this idea that our own silence gives permission for uh, white supremacy to thrive against our own community. And when we're not speaking out about the different issues that are having our community, it enables 
the kind of environment that we have to contend with. Well, those are pretty deeply ingrained kinds of behaviors. How do you get that to change? I think, as I said earlier, um, telling our stories, being able to find community in each other and be a building solidarity work with, within our own community spaces and to not feel that you are alone in this world because often we internalize our own issues. It's hard for us to have to speak out against these traumatic experiences that um, when we start speaking out, it gives us permission to start telling our stories. It gives us permission to be in community with one another. And when you build that community, it becomes harder to uh, dismantle. So I always believe that you tap into the community first and see where it goes and see the, where the progression leads to. And, and it can become very special. I think what we are seeing now the last few years is that we're seeing Asian-American groups start to speak up. They are starting to start... They're starting to share their own stories. They're starting new platforms. They are uh, doing things that uh, are making it known that we are not going to accept this uh, violence, that we are not going to accept um, these microaggressions from, uh, from other communities. You said that while you had not personally experienced uh, this kind of these kind of microaggressions or hate some of the people you know have give my audience some examples of some of the things that your friends have told you that they either had to listen to or live through i think uh one time uh one of my guests who was on my show talked about walking through new york city and a man uh, was walking in her direction and basically kicked a trash can right in front of her and her newborn child. That was one experience. Another would be uh, being in a workplace and then overhearing stuff like, well, I don't want to go to Chinatown because I don't want to get COVID. And basically naming a community, um, basically naming a community that should be avoided. That's also a form of microaggression, which, to be honest with you, is very aggressive, which is actually quite aggressive um, if one thinks about that. And those are some of the examples that are common among our own communities, uh, whether it's joking around with our friends about Asian jokes and how oftentimes that can be very uncomfortable for our own community to handle. Um, Sometimes that takes, like, I know that, Growing up, I've had to deal with anti-Asian racism uh, for a number of years, and I've had friends that would make anti-Asian jokes, and sometimes I've had to call them out and say, hey, this is not cool, and, and put on serious boundaries uh, to ensure that I am not going to tolerate this. And, yeah. Well, I know from talking to a lot of my friends here in Chicago um, I mean, it sounds absurd, but what you just described was absolutely the case when COVID first hit and, you know, all we didn't know where it came from or what was going on, but we knew there was a Wuhan-China connection. I thought it was just absolutely absurd, but before anything even closed down, I heard a lot of the restaurants in Chinatown had seen their business uh, really dry up. 
which I thought was just ridiculous. You know, I mean, if, uh, you know, it's like saying, you know, because there was a virus that came from Africa, we're not going to go eat at the Ethiopian restaurant tonight. Like, what the hell? What kind of connection do you think there there is there? I mean, on the face of it, it seems ad- absolutely absurd. But um, when people get these crazy ideas into their heads, sometimes there's there's no rational way of talking them them out of it. What would you say? Um, if you can generalize, and maybe you can't, are like the two biggest issues facing Asian Americans right now? Whew. I mean, I, if I can only name two, the one that stick out to me is the anti-Asian violence, especially towards Asian women. Um, that needs to be named, and that is still on the rise. And also what we are experiencing is that not a lot of them have been reported. I, even though um, we've been three years into COVID, it is still happening in our communities. Also, I would say another issue that does happen in our community that's not being talked about is deportations, especially in the Southeast Asian communities. Um, we have been seeing people who have, you know, served time in prison as teenagers, and then 20 years later, they would get a deportation letter knowing that they have not only served their time, but they have raised families, started their own business, um, have moved on from that life. So we're seeing the escalation that's been happening in that community, in, the, in those communities. But those are the two that um, just come up, uh, that jump at me uh, right away. With your podcast, uh, The Bon Me Chronicles, where do you go from here? What are you going to be tackling? Who are you going to be talking to? Uh, for me, I will continue to interview Asian American community members, activists, artists, educators. They make up a good part of my show. Um, for myself, I'm looking to uh, spend more time continuing to talk about these layered issues, to also not only talk about some of the um, issues that we are currently contending with, but also remember remembering to never forget the joy that we have in our community to always uh, remember that we can be allowed to express joy even in some of the more more daunting times so it's something that i will continue to work through on my podcast and that's something that i like to make sure uh it gets emphasized um i know that in addition to doing this you're also a board member uh, with the National Cambodian Heritage Museum. How did you get involved with them? So several years ago, I started to get back into the Cambodian community. I had been very distant from the community for a while because I felt the shame of not being able to speak my father's language. I felt the shame of being only half Cambodian. And I felt it was time for me to... Engage. I think it was right after I uh, lived in Korea for three years as an English teacher that I wanted, and I wanted to be around my own community members. And so I felt it was very important uh, for me to tap into that and to uh, understand myself better. And so when I got involved with the community, um, the museum had asked me to become a part of the board, which 
I'm very proud of. Um, this is uh, the same place that my dad had, you know, served in with that organization back when it was part of the Cambodian Association of Illinois. So I wanted to also honor his legacy, but I also wanted to honor um, myself and also my community uh, for what we have done to uh, lift our own community, uh, to our own community, our own history. And I wanted to do something that uh, is is very vital to uh, learning about more of my history and to make sure that that people in our community have the opportunity to learn about their history. Good. That's fascinating. I think that's so important to, uh, to especially when, like, I'm second-generation American, and to not lose contact with, I mean, yes, we have great lives, and this is who we are now, but... But where our families came from and those connections are, are so important. Um, I'm going to have to hook you up. I don't know if, have you ever talked to Linda Yu? I don't, uh, I'm going to have to connect the two of you. She's got I a, love that. she's got a fascinating story because, you know, she was actually born in China. She didn't come to this country until she was two. And uh, she told me once that, uh, her family actually named her Ling Dai, Ling Dai Yu. And as they were coming into the United States, it was like the Ellis Island thing. You know, it was like, okay, Ling Dai, Linda, Linda, she's Linda now. Um, but she has a fascinating family story of, um, of coming to this country. And I am going to definitely connect the two of you. Um, and I actually, um, just to let people know in, Next week, actually, uh, Linda is going to join me. I think we're planning for Thursday, March 16th, because she has been um, doing a deep dive into a lot of Asian-American issues, particularly to do with Asian-American discrimination and hate. And she's going to join me on the radio next week to talk about something, some of these issues. But, Randy, I'm going to connect the two of you. You need to you need to talk to her. She's amazing. That is awesome because I have always looked up to Linda for a very long time. So as a kid, so she was one of the figures that I wanted to become when I was growing up, uh, when I wanted to go into journalism back in the day. So thank you for uh, aligning that. Absolutely. And uh, for those of you who want to hear more, um, you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcast, the Bon Me Chronicles. And uh, Randy Kim is the creator and the host and uh, good luck, Randy. I hope this does really well for you. Well, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Take care. We are going to take a break for news, and we will be back with another older person right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, Live Local and Progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you CPT 820. Earlier, we talked to Ninth Ward Alderman Anthony Beal, who faced a couple of challengers, but is hanging on to his seat. 
Now we are talking to somebody else whose name will not be on the April 4th ballot because he is also hanging on to his seat. Alderman Raymond Lopez is going to continue to represent the 15th Ward and joins us now. First of all, congratulations. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate that. Good to be able to spend another four years on the radio with you. You betcha. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Do you regret the fact that you dropped out of the mayor's race? Absolutely not. You know, when I left the mayor's race, I said then that uh, priority number one was to ensure Lori Lightfoot did not have a second term. And I believe that we have accomplished that goal. So election night was a double victory as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Yeah, I was earlier talking to Anthony Beal and his. um, How do we describe his relationship with Lori Lightfoot? A problematic, um, confrontational. um, Talk about what it was about Lori that you didn't like, that you turned away from. You know, I think from the get-go, Lori's penchant for pettiness and vindictiveness got the better of her. And even without knowing people, she was already deciding whether or not she want what kind of character they had, uh, as was quite evident from our own inauguration day when she turned around and looked at every single member of the body, whether they were there for 50 years or five minutes, and accused them of all having our hand in the cookie jar. Uh, That's not how you build relationships. And when you are willing to alienate people who you need to work with, you put yourself on a singular plank. And unfortunately, all the events that have gone on during your administration sawed that plank in half right underneath her. And she wound up losing her election because of it. You know, I've been thinking a lot about that. And she's clearly a very smart woman. And um, I've been trying to figure out what would, you know, some people say, well, you know, she brought a prosecutorial mentality to the mayor's uh, chair where, you know, everything was going to be adversarial. But I think it was more than that. I wonder if because she was an outsider and basically elected because she was an outsider, if she felt that the voters wanted her to be antagonistic and confrontational, that maybe that's why they put her in that seat. What do you think? I I think there's some value to that sentiment, Joan. I believe that she believed that her mandate four years ago was based on her outsiderness, that that they wanted someone who wasn't part of the the, the proverbial backroom deal. But I think the error was that her mandate was more so because people didn't like Tony Preckwinkle than they liked Lori Lightfoot. I think the mandate was a resounding rejection of Preckwinkle's attempt to become mayor more so than it was of Lightfoot's uh, messaging Hmm. and what she brought to the table. And I think that the mayor misunderstood that. But I also believe that her biggest error was failing to realize that you are not prosecuting a case when you are in politics. The voters are able to see for themselves what you're delivering. Unlike in a courtroom where the jury only gets to hear what facts you choose to present to them to make your closing arguments, voters can see everything and they make a decision for themselves. And because she was not accustomed to having 
all facts present without being cherry picked. I think that was one of her constant issues because, you, you know, I would constantly say, along with many of my colleagues, that, you know, she simply was not acknowledging the situation on the streets. And I think that ultimately was what eroded the people's confidence in her was her steadfast refusal to even acknowledge that anything was going wrong in this city out of fear of making it look, I guess, make herself look weak. But it wasn't weakness. Her weakness was refusing to acknowledge it. Chicago and um, and nearby areas have always shown um, a willingness to uh, forgive people who do just that, who say, you know what, I thought this program was going to work. It didn't turn out the way I thought it would. It's having these other consequences. So we're changing direction. I think that, I mean, hell, Ed Burke was under, I don't think he was quite under indictment, but he was under investigation by the feds last time he was elected to the city council. So, I mean, I think that there's a huge capacity. Yeah. yeah, was it? So I think there's a huge capacity for people to uh, forgive and and overlook some things. You know, a few weeks ago, I was talking to Alderman Tom Tunney, who uh, started off, as you know, as one of Lori's lieutenants, one of our biggest supporters. And he told me that um, his philosophy and what he felt was effective politically was that you praise in public, you criticize in private. And that's the way you, you know, because nobody, let's face it, I mean, Rahm Emanuel was no shrinking violet. You know, I mean, we know that he was, um, he could be confrontational at times, but the vast majority of it was done behind closed doors. So even though we knew who he was and the kind of personality he had, it wasn't like he gave press conferences where he uh, <laughs> yelled at the reporters sitting in the in the front row or or some of his uh, his fellow colleagues. Do you think that was a crucial misstep on her part, not understanding that, you know, you can rail against somebody all you want to, but you you don't humiliate them in a city council meeting or in a media availability or a public speech. I think that definitely was something that eroded her approachability and workability amongst all the members, whether they were friend or foe, quite frankly. Um, Going back to Rahm Emanuel, if there was an event in the 45th Ward, he would still invite Alderman Arena to show up because it was his ward. Um, Whereas Lori Lightfoot, um, she would show up in your ward and you wouldn't be invited to be on the same stage with her. Or And that was regardless if you were Raymond Lopez or Pat Dow. She just didn't want any alderman by her. And the problem that that creates is that you don't have a team to stand with you and to be a buffer when the crap hits the fan. Mm-hmm. And you become the one wearing the jacket solely and only every single time something goes wrong because who's going to want to stand with you in bad times when you wouldn't let them stand with you in good times? And she wound up, you know, ignoring the easy victories that could have built herself up some political goodwill amongst the 50 members uh, in preference for always being that confrontational solo act that she wanted to be, that she was the one in charge. This was her city now. Um, And in the end, because she created that environment, 
she was judged solely for it. Nobody blamed the aldermen for the mess in, of the city. They blamed the mayor because she was mm-hmm. the one in charge now. I'm talking to 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez. We are going to take a break. We're going to continue to talk about Chicago politics when we come right back after this. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez and... I have been talking to a number of people, uh, both in city council and retiring from city council, and there seems to be, perhaps for the first time in a long time, some serious weight behind an effort to make the city council members uh, more separate from the mayor, uh, more independent from the mayor, a little bit uh, gathering a little bit more power to themselves. Do you see that as well? I do hear the conversations happening now, how we can become a more independent branch of government, uh, starting with uh, looking at how we create our committee structure, how we pick our chairman, uh, how we fund the potential position of a parliamentarian to discuss to discuss matters of rules. Yeah. So, so when the mayor is standing there and says you're out of order, you can get a ruling as to whether or not that's actually true. Well, and I, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think we can thank, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I think we can thank Mayor Lightfoot for uh, this turn in the city council, uh, seeing the value of having uh, a strong legislative branch as uh, designed by our uh, by the uh, municipal code in, uh, in the city of Chicago. Look, when even when she knew she was in the wrong and even when they knew she was not following procedure, the uh mayoral abuse that was happening just to push things through city council was outrageous. When you have individuals from all sides of the political spectrum clamoring for the fact that she was completely out of order on numerous occasions, just trying to bully people uh, in direct contradiction to what our own rule approved rules state. I think that has given many people uh, the grounds to feel confident in saying, look, We've seen what happens when you have a mayor who completely disrespects the body, the room, and just acts like the emperor of Chicago. We can never get to that point, and we need to be prepared to function independently, regardless who's on the fifth floor, whether it's Brandon or Paul, uh, that aldermen and city council must be able to act independently to ensure that government works at its best and legal way possible. So, I mean, this has been talked about for a while, uh, but there's never been the unified support. There's never been enough votes to make it happen. Do you see that being different in the coming year? Well, I think that definitely senior, the fact that so much of the seniority has shifted uh, with so many individuals, I think 14 uh, individuals who have left, that has definitely cleared up a lot of seniority within the uh, within the body. Right now, there are 19 committees that exist within the city council. Uh, So there's definitely room to maneuver, especially with the fact that only half of the uh, returning chairman, uh, half of the current chairman are returning to that room. So there's definitely openings and possibilities. But I think that the fight will always be there because you have 
let's be let's be honest, Joan. When you look at the ethnic representation that is within the body and its leadership, overwhelmingly it remains African American and Caucasian, even though there are nearly a third of the city's Latino and. 15 out of 50 are Latino members of the city council. There are only, well, actually now there's only one chairman that's Latino, which means if you were going to have parity in terms of city council leadership, or at least uh, parity in terms of numbers, there's going to be a number of individuals who need to give up positions to ensure that you have a diverse and inclusive city council leadership structure. And that's always where the fight starts. We've seen that in the remap, and I'm sure we're going to see it again um, when it comes to committee chairmanships. Just as a, a protocol question, if you are currently chairman of a committee and you have run for re-election and re-won your seat, are you, do you automatically continue as the chair of that committee, or is this something our new chairs selected like every few years? So at the beginning of each term, there's a resolution that's put into place for the rules of order and procedure. And in those rules of order and procedure are the listing of the standing committees, which are the 19 committees, whether it's finance, transportation, or anywhere in between, as well as the, the makeup of those committees and who is the assigned chairman and vice chairman. Generally speaking, in the past, mayors have tried to keep some continuity, particularly as uh, those chairmen try to align themselves with incoming administrations, but there's no guarantee and there's no requirement that yesterday's chairman have to be tomorrow's chairman. So if I'm chairman of a committee and um, in May after the runoff decides the next mayor, and if I want to stay that chairperson, I would probably start reaching out to whoever the mayor is and saying, you know, hey, keep me on. I want to stay on. I've done a great job. I can be your person. Um, that sort of thing. Right. Pretty much. Interesting. Now, all of that will change, you know, depending on how much flexibility and autonomy uh, either mayoral candidate wants to give city council, because then if it's left up to the members, then the jockeying horse trading and negotiations will kick into hyperdrive as all 50 members try to assemble a winning coalition that could put together a resolution of committee committees, committees membership and leadership that garners 26 votes. Keeping in mind that when Harold Washington was elected, um, or before, around the time when Harold Washington was elected, if I'm not mistaken, it was the Verdoliac uh, group that actually made chairmen for all members of their opposition. Yes, I think that was one of the times when one of the few times when the city council reared up and uh, asserted itself. Right. So, uh, you know, it's not outside of precedent, although I think this time it won't be as a as a call as against the mayor as much as it will be an effort to try and ensure that you have some independence from the fifth floor as a whole. You know, there are a number of people who left city council for one reason or another, and there were at least 15 wards where the incumbent was not on the ballot. And we're going to have at least uh, 15 brand new faces, maybe more. How is that going to change city council, do you think, in the next year as you as you look over either who has been elected or who's in a runoff? 
Well, I think any time that you have fresh blood come into the into the body, that's a good thing. Fresh ideas allow us to move this city forward, and I'm a big fan of making sure that we can get fresh ideas to come into the city council. My only concern is that you need to have individuals who are not only bring in new ideas, but also a willingness to work together with other members of the body and learn from other members of the body. You cannot function if you just come in solely to burn the place to the ground and get your name out there. You have to be able to know how to work with other people. And I think what we've seen during the pandemic was that a lot of those interpersonal relationships didn't get formed between members because of the shutdown and because of Zoom and things of that nature. However, now that we are back in person, now that we are going to be able to create those person-to-person bonds between old members and between returning members and new members, hopefully we'll see some of the rancor dial down a bit and being able to function uh, as a body that is listening to how to get things done while also hearing what things have to get done from our newer members. And you are, you're one of the the senior members of this city council. You're an elder statesman. How does that feel? Well, I guess I'm the old gray beard without the gray beard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's um, a very interesting dynamic being the, the most senior Latino in city council right now. Um, I think that it's incumbent upon me and others who've been here uh, to go and put the extra work in, extra effort in, to ensure that we are helping our newer members be the best aldermen they can be, regardless of their political views or aspirations. Um, you know, as I did before, four years ago, I will gladly welcome them and help them in any way I can, um, because I don't think it, it serves the city one bit to have dysfunctional ward offices or incompetent members of the city council. Um, there are things that they need to learn quickly, and there are things that we can. I can definitely show them after nearly a decade on the job uh, what they can do, and you know, leave it up to them to pick what works best for their constituents. But um, it is my hope that if they're willing to listen uh, and take what I give them just as it's given, uh, then we should have no problem moving forward. You should put together a little brochure. Welcome to City Council. Here's what you need to know. Well, you know, believe it or not, Ed Burke used to do that. Uh, really? And the, fi- the Finance Committee actually, uh, under uh, under Chairman Burke, actually would give Alderman a three-inch binder of the do's, don'ts, and how-tos of aldermanic, of aldermanic life. Um, huh. so I'm sure um, I still have mine. Um, but I know that there are things that we can, you know, update and elaborate on. But even some of the most simple and basic things of, of customer service, as well as city delivery of city service, are things that, you know, members need to know, um, right down to some of the more legal stuff that they'll learn about when it comes to the Board of Ethics, Department of Law, maintaining paperwork and things of that nature. Um, but just, you know, no one can start a brand new job, least of all in the public eye, without mentors or people to fall back on. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's important that our new members, many of whom may not necessarily share the same political ideology as others, know that when you put all of the ideological stuff to the side, you know, our job is still the same. So being able to know that there's someone you can ask a question of 
who's not going to hold it over you like a, uh, a an aha gotcha moment later uh, is very beneficial to individuals. Hmm. I am speaking with uh, 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez, who has rewon his seat and will be a part of the Chicago City Council going forward. We are going to uh, take a break. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about a couple of still a couple more Chicago centric things like what your personal priorities are for the next session of city council. And we both know that, um, let's see, today is the seventh in a little over a week. Uh, David Brown is vacating the top job at uh, the Chicago Police Department. Uh, the new mayor is going to have to uh, appoint somebody new. I want to talk to you about your thoughts on that. I'm talking to 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez. We're going to continue our talk right after a break. Take Jonas Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Whether or not we look outside the department or try to promote from within is uh, is a big topic of conversation. Where do you fall on that? And how much influence will the city council have, if any, over the choice of a new person to lead the CPD? Well, John, I think my personal preference is to have someone from within the department who's rose through the ranks to lead the department. But we have to remember that we've just approved a new mechanism for picking the superintendent and for helping to create a a policy and structure within the police department, and that is the Civilian Oversight Commission that was recently created by city council and where we just had elections throughout all of the police districts to create and appoint three members who will eventually be a part of the larger citywide commission. That commission is charged to put together candidates who would be uh, possibilities for the next superintendent of police from which the mayor of Chicago, whether that is Brandon Johnson or Paul Vallis, or in this case still Lori Lightfoot, would be able to choose from. Um, I would hope that the current mayor um, would not pick someone who will ultimately be uh, hired under one administration and then trying to work under another. I think that an interim is fine for the next two months just to hold down the fort while the mayor and uh, the rest of the elections play out as they are uh, scheduled to do so. Okay. Um, What kind of qualities would you like to see in the person who leads the CPD? Well, personally, I believe that we have to someone who understands and appreciates the value of the brave men and women who put on that uh, uniform every day, understands exactly what they are dealing with out on the streets and, and is willing to commit the support to them to ensure that they have everything they need to not only do their job well, do their job in a constitutional manner, but also be able to go home and decompress in a way that allows for their optimal mental health. That is first and foremost. I think we need uh, a superintendent who is fully committed to ensuring that we work through the consent decree and do it in a fast and expedient way and not under the uh, eight-year plan that the current administration put in place. The sooner that we resolve the issues of the consent decree, the sooner our officers can get back to knowing 
their role and where they do, and how they do things as it relates to policing in the city of Chicago because of the multitude of open-ended questions that exist right now within the department because of the consent decree many officers are uh, concerned about how best to proceed what is considered legal today would that be legal tomorrow so on and so forth and I think that the only way we can get through that is to work through the consent decree in an expedient manner, just like L.A. did following the Rodney King riots, and to ensure every officer knows where and what their role is in policing in the city of Chicago. Now, I have a personal preference. I think we've had enough outsiders uh, trying to solve the city's problems. Um, But again, I know that that's not a requirement as it relates to the commission or the ordinance that decides whom whom the commission puts forward to the mayor. But I would hope that the next mayor, whomever that is, finds value in having a homegrown superintendent and indeed homegrown leaders of all our departments. We, we don't always need to find someone outside to help us with the problems on the inside. There were, well, not, it didn't come from him, but there was, there was talk swirling around the retirement of chief of detectives, Brendan Dinahan, that he had announced that he was going to be leaving the department because the feeling was that even if the new mayor appointed a chief of police from within, it would just not be a decision that would it would not be an appointment that would go to a white man. Do you have any thoughts on that? Had you heard those those same things that that's why he was decided he was going to leave? He was going to go take this job with Google because basically he felt that he had advanced as far as he was going to and that for sure the next head of the Chicago Police Department would be African-American. Well, I have not heard those rumors, but if that's the environment we are creating in the city of Chicago where advancement is determined by skin color or lack of advancement conversely is determined by skin color, then shame on us for creating uh, a segregated bureaucracy to match the segregated city. That That is downright shameful if that's what we've created. And I know there's a feeling among many that that does exist, uh, but we must rail against it and we must continue to promote individuals based on what they have done and what values they espouse. That is more important to me than the color of one's skin because I have seen plenty of individuals who may look like me or may look like communities and are not good for those communities. And I've seen individuals who have nothing in common with communities or, or work groups based on their skin color and are uplifting them every single day of the week. Speaking of uh, police, I know that for a while you were having quite a bit of gang-related problems with um, people damaging your campaign office, your aldermanic office, and even, um, I believe, throwing a brick through a window of your home. Has has that settled down? Are you still dealing with those kinds of things? Thankfully, Joan, I haven't had to deal with that to the extent that I have in the past. I think the remap may have changed some of those dynamics for me because a number of the areas that uh, I used to be entangled with, those gang members, and fighting tooth and nail 
on are now in the 12th ward and not the 15th ward. But I also know that I'm sure that will be a short-lived honeymoon for me because in my new ward, I have new gangs and new players, and we're all going to have to get to know each other. And I know they're not going to like who I am. So we'll see what happens. But I think that uh, having to have had stared down gang members without flinching um, and having a reputation for that. Hopefully that dissuades any other knuckleheads from thinking that they're going to be the ones to scare me because that will not be the case. And we've seen where you need leaders who are willing to stand up and call gangbangers out to call a spade a spade. As we saw this week following the unfortunate murder of Andres Vasquez Lasso, who was killed by a known gangbanger who the state's attorney and others have tried to downplay the gang connections and downplay his past criminality uh, out of the sake of, you know, creating a narrative that he was just a misunderstood boy because there clearly are commit individuals committed to that lifestyle still lurking all around us. And the mayhem and, and destruction that they are ca- that they can cause is rears itself daily. I'm speaking with 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez, We are going to take a break and continue our talk right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I'm pleased to be joined by 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez. He has uh, won re-election to his seat and is going to continue on as one of the elder statesmen of the Chicago City Council. Raymond, what are your priorities in the coming session? You know, my priorities remain uh, addressing the violence that we see in our in our city, in our communities, but also working uh, to bring our city together. You know, one of the great joys that I have is that for several months, I was a citywide candidate when I was still in the mayor's race. And I got to see what's working and what's not, not just in uh, what I'm used to seeing in my ward, but in wards all across the city of Chicago. And that gives me a very different perspective as I return to city council uh, and allows me to be in a better position to help guide the policies that we know that we need to push forward in, in order to lift all neighborhoods. There are no reason why there's no reason why we should be a governmental bureaucracy that fails to recognize that oftentimes we are the impediment. The city of Chicago as a government is the impediment to progress in our neighborhoods. And I've seen where that progress has held communities back for years, if not decades. And my goal will be to work to ensure that we change that dynamic, starting with uh, one of the things, Joan, that I'm pleased to uh, talk to you about on this show, which is uh, reversing how the city handles its permitting, licensing, and uh various applications, taking it to the standard, well, we'll let you know when it's approved, basically starting from a point of denial and working your way to approval and taking a more affirmative response approach towards applications within the city of Chicago, ensuring that if you apply for any kind of licensing, zoning, business application, permit, et cetera, that we will look at it as though it is approved unless we hear within 10 business days from departments or aldermen that it should not be and why in writing. 
that mm-hmm. will immediately have a noticeable effect on how long it takes us to get businesses open and to start rebuilding and rejuvenating our economy. Okay. Um, the, as far as making this happen, what is the actual program? I mean, I was talking to Anthony Beal earlier and I told him that a lot of people are saying since Invest Southwest was Mayor Lightfoot's brainchild that it was likely to go away. And he said that that didn't matter to him because it had never really he didn't think it ever really got off the ground. But how do you bring the kind of economic support to your ward that it needs? What's the program? Well, well I think first off, I, you don't need necessarily a specific program. You just need to take away the roadblocks. And we know that whether it's in my ward, Beals Ward, or any one of the other 48 wards in the city of Chicago, if you are trying to start a business or if you're trying to get licensing or if you're trying to get zoning, it could take anywhere between nine months on the short end to nearly two years on the, on the average to get approval. There's no way that we can expect Chicago to grow, businesses to take hold, and people to want to invest in our city if you have to float 18 months' worth of costs simply because government can't make up, can't come to a decision. And that is something that I think we can mandate by law in the municipal code. I'm already working to identify that. But I think as well as you look at some of the things that you're talking about, like with Alderman Bay, like Invest Southwest, for example, you know, Nothing ever really goes away when you start identifying pools of money in which you can use to lift communities. Now, yes, Lori Lightfoot failed to actually do anything with her commitment to invest in the south and west side neighborhoods of the city of Chicago. But that wasn't something that was brand new. That was just a rebranded version of Mayor Rahm Emanuel's Neighborhood Opportunity Fund. Yeah, you're not the first person to say that. which I'm sure the next administration will rebrand Invest Southwest into something brand new in and of themselves, which is just a continuation of what Lori did, which was a continuation of what Rom did, uh, and we'll go from there. But I think that we've already identified, you know, several years ago, funding sources that fit uh, the the creation of opportunity in the neighborhood. What you call it doesn't matter. But I think what we have to get away from is this this slow rolling of opportunity by the government, by the city's government, to where that nothing gets done. You know, Mayor Emanuel was able to get money out the door into people's hands and get projects done. I mean, we know that he used to be very proud of the fact that there were cranes everywhere building and growing the city. Yeah. This administration may have had headlines, but they had no growth. So what we need to focus on really is the will having the sheer political will to actually start signing those checks, identifying those projects and making a go of it so that we can build and support businesses that are needing help and wanting to expand and do all the right things that they need to do to keep our economy growing. Because at the end of the day, there's only so much money we can squeeze out of taxpayers. You have to grow the tax base and you can only grow if you have new businesses hiring new employees with those employees spending new dollars in their neighborhoods at stores continuing that circle of of investment from the top on down Cheryl Corey from uh, NPR she and I are co-moderating a debate with Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson this Saturday. We're going to have them for two glorious hours, so hopefully we can go beyond uh, just the headlines. What question or questions would you like to add to our list of what we're going to ask the candidates? 
I would say, you know, there's all kinds of technical questions that we could ask about programs, about spending and budgets and things of that nature. But right now, I think the question that I would ask to both of them, <clears throat> and you are 100% catching me off guard with that question. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I just, you know, I'm thinking to myself, because Cheryl and I are in the process, we talk every day, and we're adding questions, and I thought, well, you know, you're a perfect person to weigh in here. Get another perspective. I think that the question that I would pose to them if I were in your position is how do you intend to inspire the next generation of Chicagoans as mayor? We have not had a mayor that inspires people for quite some time. And I think the question to both of them is we could talk programs and policy all we want, but as mayor, how would they, inspire Chicago's inspire Chicago, the next generation of Chicagoans. How would they do that? Thinking about that question and looking at our mayors, uh, you know, you correct me, you have your own opinion. I think Harold Washington was pretty inspirational. Who would you look back and say inspired the young generation? Well, I think definitely Harold Washington inspired people. I think Mayor Daley inspired people just by his sheer longevity. <laughs> um, I mean, he was he was the mayor we grew up with, people in my generation. So he was all we knew for twenty, almost thirty, almost three decades. Um, I think there are, to varying degrees, very selected officials that inspire people in different ways. But I think. It's been a long time since Chicago had a mayor that they truly looked up to, that people miss. And I'd be curious to see how they view their place in history should they become mayor. As will, will they be a mayor that's inspirational? Will they be a mayor that's motivational? Will they be a mayor that's irrational or confrontational? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm guessing they would say no to the last two. Well, just off the top of my head, I'm guessing that that would be a hard no. Well, I think 83% of the people just told both of them that they don't want a confrontational mayor. So that, that yes. they want someone who's going to, to inspire them. And I think the question is, fairly, how do you inspire Chicagoans? Now, I know Paul seems to be more on the technical side of things, whereas Brandon seems to be more on the emotional side of things, but at the end of the day, either one of those two values could be used to inspire people. It's just a question of do they know and feel that they have the command of their strengths to inspire people? And if so, how would they do it? Yeah. My guess is that people would find it inspirational if someone were able to really make their lives better or safer and do it in a way that it didn't feel like they were creating enemies along the way. You know, I think that that would be, um, I, you know, all, all politics is local. What are you doing for me? You know, do I feel safer in my neighborhood? Do I have more opportunities? Are, are there more places or fewer places to shop in my neighborhood? That's how I'm, I think most people judge politicians. By what's in 10 feet in front of them, 10 feet behind them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think also I think also the trick for them both would be, you know, the answer is both of them on the stage, to be perfectly honest. 
the answer is the other, the one would have to be more like the other and show people that, that they have compassion and heart along with a, a, a technical sense of how to accomplish it or that they have the uh, command and wherewithal of the policies but also have some empathy and, and, and humility upon which to know that they are serving people. I think that's how you inspire. You have to be a combination of the two. You can't just be all of one or all of the other. And I think that whoever can show that they have both will be the one that is the will, is ultimately going to be more victorious than the, than the other one, in my opinion. <laughs> I think I think that's a wonderful assessment. I think that's um, I think that's perfect. Nice job off the cuff. <laughs> yes, you do. And I always, I always throw you a curveball, and you always handle it so well. So, uh, sorry, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep doing it because you know, random thoughts. <laughs> as I listen to our conversation, these random thoughts fire in my brain, and I give voice to them for, for better or for worse. Uh, Raymond, thank you so much for being here. I love talking to you. It's been too long. Joan, soon we'll be in person and, and laughing in front of each other. I'll tell you that three of my big dogs are all standing here looking at me, letting me know oh. I have to go outside while I've been on the <laughs> Okay. Well, you've got, you've got kids to take care of. Go do it. Go take them for a walk. Thank you for being here. Uh, this is 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez. That's going to do it for me today. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening. Stay safe. Good night.